Welcome, and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. Well, good morning, City Bridge. How are we doing? Awesome. If I've not had the opportunity to meet you face-to-face or to bump into you with a cup of coffee in your hand, uh, my name is David Leventhal. (laughs) Sorry about that. And uh, it's great to be with you this morning as we jump into week five of the letter to the church in Colossae. So I don't know, I'm not a Twitter guy or X guy, whatever they call it now, but I was turned on to an article this week about something that happened on, at 9.46 in the morning on Monday, a pretty innocuous, innocuous, non-threatening nine-word tweet went out um, by our buddy Elmo. You guys remember Elmo from Sesame Street? So here's what Elmo tweeted out. By the way, who knew Elmo had a Twitter account? 500,000 followers. So he tweets out, hey everybody, Elmo's just checking in. How's everybody doing? How's everybody doing? I don't think our boy Elmo was prepared because as of this morning, 207 million people had viewed that tweet with about 19,000 comments. And I don't think uh, Sesame Street was prepared for the responses he got. Some were lighthearted and funny. We'll go through just a couple. One guy said, well, my dog just rolled around in goose poop. Thanks for asking, Elmo. Another one said, every morning I cannot wait to go back to sleep. Every Monday, I can't wait for Friday to come. Every single day, every single week for life. Elmo, we are tired. Elmo, I'm gonna be real with you. I don't think I can keep living like this. I feel like Oscar the Grouch in a world of Elmos. Boy, I get that. Oh, you know, just living the dream. Every day feels like a magical adventure into the depths of despair. It's truly a roller coaster ride of disappointment and self-doubt. Another one said, I did not have us all trauma dumping on Elmo on my bingo card. (laughs) That was pretty funny. And then one guy said, Elmo's going to be rich when he gets his ad revenue on Friday. And I'm sure Elmo went and bought, you know, Pepsis for everybody on Sesame Street after he got his check. So the reason I bring that up is I read that tweet and then just sort of looked through a couple pages of the responses. One thing stood out is that we live in a world where we've got a lot of folks who are swimming in hopelessness and despair and they're tired, and they're overwhelmed, and they're just had an opportunity to dump on Elmo. And the reason that resonated with me is because this week, we're gonna be in a section in the letter to the Colossians, and we're gonna read here in just a moment. Paul's gonna say to these believers, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And one thing I was reminded of in Elmo's tweet is that we live in a world that has been taken captive by a philosophy that is not grounded in Christ. And it has led to some really difficult living. Philosophies of just do you, you do you. Just focus on your happiness. That's the only thing you got to worry about. The philosophy of, hey, listen, the thing that's going to bring you the most joy and happiness is a, is a really robust bank account. So you got to get it where you can. The philosophy of just let go. Like there's no God. Just be free. Do what you want to do. If you, if you feel like something's right, just jump into that headlong. Philosophy of some of the believers. I just got to work harder. I got to do more so that God's gonna love me, or at least maybe he won't make my life suck as much as it does. And the results have been tragic. And we got a little glimpse into that this week through our boy Elmo. 
And by the way, I don't think all of the responses on Elmo's Twitter feed came from non-Christians, the pagans living like uh, just hellions. I think there was a lot of believers in there that were acknowledging the same thing. Elmo, we're tired. We're exhausted. We're weary. And I think our section of scripture this week, Colossians 2, 6 to 15, is going to speak directly to this. So let's talk about where we're going today. As we hit uh, chapter 2, verse 6, we are entering the body of the letter of Colossians. And that's going to go from 2, 6 to chapter 4, verse 6. And the body of the letter breaks up into two big chunks. Verses 6 to 23 in chapter 2 is one chunk. And in this section of the body of the letter, Paul is going to be laying out all the theological implications of the theme, which we'll talk about today. He's going to help believers think rightly about Jesus. And we're going to spend two weeks on this section of the body, this week and next week. And then the second block of the, of the body of the letter is going to be from chapter 3, verse 1 to 4, 6. And we're going to spend three weeks on that. And that's where Paul is going to tackle the practical implications of the theme of the letter. What does it look like in real life? How do the rubber meet the road? Okay, and we're gonna see about like 20 imperatives in that section. It's gonna be a lot of, here's what it looks like, but we're not gonna see that many in this, in this first block of the, of, the, uh, of the body. Okay, so that's where we're headed for the next five weeks. There's your preview for the next five weeks. So let's read the passage today. I've highlighted, as, as we go, you're gonna notice that I've highlighted some, some phrases. And if you're the kind of person that writes in your Bible, and I would encourage you to write in your Bible, you're not writing in the original text, it's okay. Underline or circle or highlight these phrases, okay? So let's read it and then we'll go back and we'll unpack it a little bit at a time, okay? Therefore, uh, Colossians 2, 6. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him... All the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Can you guess what the big ideas of our passage this week? The, do the nine instances of in him and with him, they should be a, like a flashlight shining onto you. Here it is. It's this. In him, you've got all you need. Simple. So if you write in the margin of your Bible, if you want to buy this paragraph, in him, you've got all you need. That's the big idea. It's about how Christ... We've got everything we need. Remember, in the, as we're studying this letter, we've got these believers in Colossae in the Lycus Valley, and in the air of, of their world is this idea that to really experience the fullness of God, you don't just need Jesus, you need Jesus plus some other stuff. And as we've said, that other stuff is most likely a reference to the Jewish tradition, tacking on some of the Jewish uh, oral tradition. And Paul is going to lay out today, we're going to see today, very clearly what has been accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. And it's meant to drive us to this conclusion. I don't need to add anything to it. 
because in him, I've got all I need. Okay, that's the passage. It's gonna break up into three sections, verses six to seven. We're gonna see that in him, you're established. We're established. We're gonna see in eight to 10, in him, we're complete. And verses 11 to 15, in him, we're forgiven. Okay, so that's where we're going. Let's jump into verse six and seven. In him, you're established. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. These two verses serve as the theme of the entire letter. You've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. That's the theme. And Paul starts these verses with a therefore. And whenever you see a therefore, you ought to ask yourself, what's that therefore? And the reason that's there is because Paul's referring back to some things we've already talked about. Specifically, chapter 113 to 25, in which these believers, we learn, had been delivered from the domain of darkness. They'd been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son. They'd come to know Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn of all creation, who holds all things together. They'd heard about how Paul was really desperate to see them, to invest in them, that they might reach all the riches of full assurance and understanding the knowledge of God. Therefore, in light of all of that, since all of that is true, and by the way, all of that is true. Since all of that's true, then as you've received Christ, now walk in him. And Paul says, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord. Okay, let me just give you a quick observation. Christ Jesus, the Lord. In your New Testament, you're gonna see those three words, titles, come together about 74 times, best I can tell. Okay, and it's gonna come in, in different ways like our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, our Lord, and so on and so forth. But this is the only place of the 74, this is the only place that the combination of names and articles are put together in this way. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Okay, now I'm gonna do something awful. I'm gonna ask you to go back to junior high grammar. I know, I know. You remember what an article is? An article is something that modifies the noun. Okay, it gives you some information about the noun. And so what Paul does is he says, Jesus Christ, and he throws an article in there, the Lord. And what he's doing there is he's saying, he's setting apart from uh, Jesus Christ, he's setting apart the Lord title. Okay, he's wanting to highlight that. That's why he said it that way. And this is the only time in your New Testament that that, that happens that way. What Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ, the Lord, it's, he's reiterating this God man is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. He's the head of the body, the church. He is uh, the mystery of God. He's the repository of all wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ, the Lord means that he is Lord of every square inch of every galaxy. There's not a blade of grass that's not his. He is Lord over every president, every dictator, every philosophy, every human that's ever been created. He's Lord over your marriage. He is Lord over your children, your job, your finances. He is Lord over your anxiety. He's Lord over your depression, your confusion, and your weariness. Christ Jesus the Lord is the central confession if we're going to navigate this Elmo-laden world with empty philosophy and deceit, we're going to need to return to that truth every single day. Jesus Christ, the Lord. Okay, so we see in this verse, this receive and walk. And what, that's gonna, what that is, is that's a, a summary of the, of, the, of the Christian life. It's the, the Lord leads us to a place 
where we come to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and we spend the rest of our lives walking with him. It's two sides of the same coin. We begin to submit to Christ and then we live that out. There is no category in your Bible, no category for a believer who says, I receive Jesus as Lord and does not walk in him. That person does not exist. When you claim Jesus Christ the Lord, you are meant to walk in him. But here's the catch. The why really, really, really matters. Why we walk in him. So that or because of. Do we try to walk in him so that God will love us more, so that we can experience a, a greater degree of Jesus, so that God will pay attention to us, so that he'll make my life smooth, my path straight? Or do we walk in him because of the fact that God has already demonstrated his great love for us in the cross? So that or because of, and this guys is exhausting to do because we live in a world where nothing is because of. We work so that, that's, what, that's the water we swim in. We work so that, and some of us have rolled into 2024 and we are really tired. We are um, we have been on the, 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 the hamster wheel of working so that, thinking if we just do one more thing, if we add one more activity, if we add one more Bible study, one more chapter of scripture a day, if I, if I have this one more what, dot, 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 that somehow God is gonna fully turn his face towards us. And the whole point of the letter to the church in Colossae is an antidote because Paul's gonna tell us, if you've got him, you've got all you need. And so the so that because of question doesn't go away because we're humans and we're, we're, we're trained to do things so that you'll like me. That's the way we treat each other, unfortunately. And so we've got to constantly remind ourselves that in him, we've got all we need. I walk in Christ because of, not so that. Does that make sense? So how do we walk in him? Paul's going to give us four participles that flesh out what it looks like when somebody walks in him. The first two participles. That person is rooted and built up. Paul grabs a metaphor, one from agriculture, rooted, and one from construction, uh, built up. Both are metaphors of growth. Your roots grow deep and your branches grow up. Part of walking involves taking steps to help your roots grow deep and your branches grow high. This see to it that no one takes you captive, we're gonna see in a second here, is the only command in this, section, in this section of scripture, see to it. So Paul says, hey, there's a responsibility for you to see to it that you're rooting yourselves, okay? We're supposed to uh, grow down and we grow up. And we do that, one of the ways we do that, maybe, maybe the primary way we do that is by getting to know God through his word. If you wanna have your roots grow deep, you've got, we've gotta become familiar with who God is. And the way we do that is in scripture. We don't worship the Bible, right? but we do worship the God who gave us the Bible. And the only way to get to know the God who gave us the Bible is to read the Bible. And so we gotta be in God's word again and again, helping our roots go deep. We meditate, we immerse ourselves in it. And then the next two um, part of the participles, that person is established and they're built abounding in thanksgiving. And these metaphors describe the outworking of somebody who's rooted and built up. Somebody who's rooted and built up is established and they abound in thanksgiving. The, the idea of being established, it carries the idea of firmness, of being solidly ground. As you walk with Jesus over time, as you hear his word, as you put them into practice over time, measured in months and years, not days and weeks, you will discover that your foundation is becoming more and more established. 
When I graduated from college in, in uh, James Madison University in Virginia in, 90, in the mid-90s, my first job out of college, my summer job, was working for a commercial construction company. And the project we were working on that summer, we were building a high school gymnasium, add-on to a, a local high school in Virginia. And we spent weeks preparing the foundation to pour the concrete. And one of the things I got a PhD in was tying rebar. So when you're building a foundation, you have to add rebar to it. Okay, if you don't know rebar, I've got a picture for you. It's steel that helps the foundation solidify. Why, how do they know that? Because the construction nerds have discovered that when you put steel in concrete, it strengthens the concrete. It increases its load capacity. It helps prevent cracks. It makes it more durable. Okay, you add a lot of rebar. And boy, I was bent over tying rebar for weeks, getting that foundation ready to pour. Why do I bring this up? Well, because every time you and I sit down at God's word with an open heart and an open mind, we are adding another piece of steel to our foundation. Every time you sit down with a friend and have a meaningful conversation about what you're learning in scripture and you hear from them what they're learning, you're adding a piece of steel to your foundation. When you're in the midst of hardship, and sorrow and suffering. And in the midst of that, you, you go back and you recount all of the things that God has done in your life, even in the midst of the hard, you are adding a piece of steel to your rebar. And this is really important because your foundation is going to be tested, okay? And Jesus in Matthew five to seven gives the Sermon on the Mount. It's this idea of what does it look like to be a kingdom-minded person? And it's this amazing teaching. And listen to how Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew seven. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears and does. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came and the winds blew and they beat against that house and it fell. And great was that fall, okay? Storms are coming, guys. It's not a question of if they're coming, it's a question of when they're coming. And you wanna have as thick and sturdy of a foundation as possible. And can I just be completely candid with you? The last three years of my life, my foundation in Christ has been tested in ways I did not see coming. And there's been days where I have wrestled deeply with God and his lordship. Because I'm like, you're not doing a real good job at your job. And there's been some days, there were some days where I was like, is this, is any of this real? Have I just wasted the last 30 years of my life? And what I want you to hear, and I want to be really clear on this, the thing that has carried me through more than anything else has been my foundation over 30 years of adding steel. And here's what I want you to hear. It's wasn't because Leventhal is so great and he persevered. I was preserved. There were days I was looking for the eject button and God held me and kept me close and allowed me to lean on all of the rebar, all the deposits over years and years and years. Established, but not just established, abounding in thanksgiving. I wanna pause for a moment because we're gonna see in this letter that thankfulness and being thankful, it's a big part of this letter. We see it in chapter 1-3 and 1-12, 2-7, 3-15, If what Paul has described is true, which again, I think it is, then Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has brought peace and has brought uh, reconciliation where there was war and discord, then thankfulness sure seems like it ought to be a foundational byproduct. But again, can I just be honest with you? 
I'm an individual who struggles with thankfulness. My whole life, I've struggled with that. I got other things I struggle with, but we'll get to them in other weeks. I tend to see the world in hues of gray. I just do, darker tones. And I hate that about myself, I really do. And I've struggled at times to, to, to be thankful as I look at what God is doing or from my perspective, what God is not doing. And I've struggled to be thankful. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that the litmus test for my ability to be thankful is directly correlated to my perspective, not to what my heart feels, but to what my brain thinks. Okay, I've noticed that when I am short-sighted, when I'm forgetful, when I'm fixed on the wrong thing, my thankfulness meter goes in the toilet. And I don't think I'm unique in this perspective, if I'm honest. In fact, we're gonna see in a couple weeks, Paul is gonna tell these believers in 3.1 to seek the things that are above, set where Christ is, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And the more I do that consistently, diligently, the greater the degree of my thankfulness is. And I don't slip into thankfulness. We don't slip into thankfulness. Okay, we have to be trained in it. And so here's like, if you're just asking and you're not, but I'm gonna tell you, you should be. One of the things we can pray for one another, pray for me, pray for each other, is that this would be a place that is abounding in thanksgiving because there's, what Paul is teaching is true and it is worthy of thanksgiving. And we gotta get out of our own heads and focus back in on what Jesus has done and that would create more and more thanksgiving. Okay, so verses six and seven, the core of the letter of the Colossians. You've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The rest of the book, starting in verse eight, is gonna be unpacking what that means for these believers in, in the church in Colossae. So in him, we're gonna see in verses eight through 10, in him you are complete. <coughs> me. So verse eight, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Why? For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and you have been filled in him who is the head of all th rule and authority. So having introduced us to the theme of the letter, Paul now moves to unpack it. And he gives us this first, the first specific danger we see, that there's a philosophy not based on Christ that's in the air. And the first imperative, the first command, see to it that you are not taken captive by it. The issue isn't, of course, philosophy itself. Philosophy is just answering the basic questions of life. Who is God? Why are we here? And so on. His issue was that people are being taken captive by a philosophy that's not grounded in Christ. His point is, if you look to answer these questions apart from Christ, you're going to end up with 19,000 comments on Elmo's Twitter feed. Okay? So uh, uh, he says that these philosophies that are in the air are according to human traditions. That's what he says. Now, that exact same phrase in the Greek, exact same phrase, shows up in Mark chapter seven, verses eight. And I'm gonna do a bit of a, a I'm, gonna try and be, I'm gonna try and be quick. A bit of a rabbit trail here, because I think it's important, okay? Um, of this human tradition idea, two reasons. One, I think it's, I think it's in play here in, in, in Colossians. And two, we've been encouraging you, if you wanna know what God looks like, read the gospels, right? We've encouraged you to read the gospels. And if you don't get this, you will not understand the gospels fully. This is really important, okay? So here we go, I'm gonna try and move fast, very quickly. In Mark 7, <clears throat> Jesus is being rebuked or being questioned by the religious leaders of the day because his disciples were not washing their hands on the Sabbath in accordance with the Jewish tradition, okay? Uh, he, he says, uh, in verse seven, three to four, Mark writes, the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, according, uh, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Mark throws that in his gospel almost as a parenthetical note because he knows that not all his readers are Jewish and they won't understand. So Mark takes a second to explain, here's what's going on with this washing of hands bit. It's in this context that Jesus begins to lay into the Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And he says, here's our phrase. He says that uh, he condemns them because they leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Exact same phrase as human tradition in Colossians 2. So when we talk about the tradition of men, in Judaism, we're talking about something called chalakah or the tradition of the elders or the tradition of men. It's the same thing. It all means the same thing. And what was it? So in Jesus's day and today, Halakha was the, um, the body of regulations in Judaism that helped expound and build on the 613 commandments that God gave the nation of Israel in the first five books of the Bible, okay? And so, and it was as binding as the law, okay? Let me give you an example. Sabbath. In the Old Testament, honor the Sabbath shows up about 12 times. And it's all sort of the same formula. Honor the Sabbath, keep it holy, don't work, 12 times. So the, the religious leaders of, of Israel was like, well, what does it mean to work? Because we, we don't want to accidentally step over that line and, and then have, have violated God's command to work. Well, what does it mean to work? And so over the years, over the centuries, they took that one command, honor the Sabbath, it's holy, don't work. And they created 39 categories of work, 39 categories of work, planting, uh, fishing, uh, lighting fires, weaving, and so on. But that wasn't enough. Because what does it mean to, to plant? You got to define that some more. So from those 39 categories, one commandment, 39 categories, dozens and dozens of regulations underneath of it to help people not break the Sabbath. And it became this, this heavy burden. And here's the catch. In Judaism, all of the things below the commandment are of the same weight as honor the Sabbath. Same weight. And this is the thing that Jesus went hard to the hole on in the gospels, okay? Is that, that they were burdened. And this is what Paul says, uh, according to human traditions, he's referring, I think, to the Jewish traditions that's in the air in Colossae. And Paul's saying, you don't need to go down that rabbit hole. You don't need to because in him, you've got all you need. That's Paul's point, okay? So hit the gear. We're done with Mark. There's a lot more I could say. There's a lot more I want to say, but I don't have time. Back to Colossae. So he brings that up, again, to help these, these believers in Colossae realize you don't need to go back to the oral tradition, to the tradition of the elders. You don't have to do that because in him, you've got all you need. Uh, remember back a couple weeks ago in chapter one, in verse 119, uh, Paul wrote that in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You remember that? Well, here he, he repeats himself. He says, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. But he adds something. He adds a phrase. And you have been filled in him. Catch that? He takes the same idea as a couple weeks back in our, we learned, and he adds, and you have been filled in him. What does that mean? It means that in Christ, these believers... And we, us today, we have been granted completeness and fulfillment that you can't achieve anywhere else, not in any other philosophy. You have been uh, filled in the one in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means we are complete in him. But Paul's not done. In him, we're also forgiven. This is going to be 11 to 15. Okay, so let's read that and we'll unpack that. In him, 
Also, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So what Paul is doing in these verses is he's piling on top of one another, all these various metaphors and words. It's a, it's a fairly like, boy, there's a lot, there's a lot of words there. Uh, he's doing that to show all that's been accomplished all that's been accomplished through Christ's death and resurrection. That's the point of these verses. So essentially he said, hey, you guys have been identified with Christ and you now have new life. You were dead and now you're alive. You were in sin and now you've been forgiven. You had a debt and now that debt has been settled. You've been held captive, but now your captives have been defeated. That's what's going on in these verses. And he starts in verse 11 with a metaphor from circumcision. Two places you talk about circumcision. Pediatric hospital, and the church. And, and in this section, it's like circumcision, good, all, all the circumcision talk. What's going on here? Well, so since Genesis 17, circumcision has been uh, the physical identifier of God's covenant people, okay? It was meant to, to show them physically you are different than the surrounding nations. You're different, you look different. But the idea was never that it would just be, you look different, it was to be a reminder that they are to be different. It wasn't just about the circumcision. And so Paul says to these believers, you've been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And those guys are probably like, and thank the Lord. (laughs) So he's picking up on an Old Testament theme, which rather than focusing on the Israelites' physical circumcision, in the Old Testament, the Lord repeatedly goes back to a spiritual circumcision. Hey, just circumcise your hearts, God would say. Stop being stubborn. Love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and strength. That shows up in Leviticus. That shows up in Deuteronomy. That shows up in Jeremiah. True intimacy and devotion to God has never been about some physical ritual. It's always been about a heart that is soft and turned towards God. It's always heart transformational. And the Israelites were stubborn, like some of you Gentiles and some of us Jews still are, stubborn. And God would say, listen, it's not about the physical ritual. Circumcise your heart, bro. Okay. Now, best we can tell, best we can tell, there doesn't seem to be anything that would indicate that these believers were being encouraged or or pressured to actually be circumcised. Paul's point is that they've already been spiritually circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. They are identified with God's people. They're identified not through some physical act of circumcision. They have been identified with Christ through a spiritual circumcision. And so uh, how did that happen? Okay, what manner did this circumcision made without hands take place? Paul tells us it took place by the putting off of the body of the flesh, literally in the Greek, stripping off of the body by the circumcision of Christ. What's the circumcision of Christ? It was his physical death on the cross when he stripped off his body. They're identified with it. They don't need to be snip, snip. They're identified with Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus ripped off his flesh and these believers have come to be identified with it. This was possible through his death and his burial, but it wasn't just possible through his death and his burial. Paul keeps going. They're identified with Jesus, the one who died, 
but also the one who was raised from the dead. They were in him and they were with him. So again, why? Why would you ever consider trying to add to that? That's Paul's point. Look at all that's been accomplished. Why would you even think about succumbing to this philosophy that's going on in the world? And if you're here this morning and you've been out there busting your butt on the gotta get God's attention treadmill, let me just tell you, you can step off, okay? God is not more impressed with you because you've got a cross around your neck, you've got a fish on your car, you've got some Hebrew or Greek tattoo. Uh, he's not impressed by your efforts to be the, like the best citizen in Collin County or to help old people across the street or to give your money away. He's not impressed by that. Okay, what he wants for you to do is realize that in Jesus, he has done all of the work. So you can step off the treadmill. All of that's available in him, in Christ, but he's still not done yet. Hammer home the point. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, you would say. Now, Paul's talking to these Gentile believers who hadn't been circumcised. They were in fact, they were in fact, uncircumcised in the flesh. Gentiles. And he reminds them, you Gentiles, you were dead. Spiritually, morally, separated from God. You were not a part of the covenant people. But now you have been circumcised of Christ. See, the Jewish people, the Israelites, they had an advantage, Paul would say. They had the law, the prophets, they had the, the, the signs and the wonders that God performed. And yet for these Gentiles, Paul says, God has made you alive together with him. You don't need to get, you've been, you don't need anything physical. You've been, you've been made alive having been forgiven all your trespasses. And by the way, notice there's a, 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 there's a slight, Paul says, you, you, you. And then he goes to us, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So Paul's acknowledging the Gentile believers separated from Christ, not part of the covenant community, but here's the deal. But all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, have been forgiven. We needed forgiveness too, Paul would say of the Jewish people. So how did this forgiven, uh, how have we been forgiven all of our trespasses? How did that work? Great question. Let's keep reading. Paul says in verse 14, by the canceling of the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Paul draws his next metaphor from the legal world. We had a record of debt, a certificate of indebtedness, a document that declared our incalculable debt. And it wasn't just a document. It was a document that stood against us. It was a document of condemnation because we failed to acknowledge God. We've failed to live in a way that pleases him. We've, we haven't served him. We've gone our own ways and we are in a hole so deep, there's no way out. And so what has God done with that document of damnation? He took it, he set it to the side, and he destroyed it by nailing it to the cross. Your debt, my debt, the debt of these believers in Colossae had been crucified. But Paul's not done yet. He's already reminded these believers in chapter two, verse 10. Remember that Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. He said that in 2.10. Jesus is the head of all rule and authority. And in verse 15, he's gonna show you how that headship has been expressed. So Jesus is the Lord of all rule and authority. So what? So that same guy disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Don't miss what's going on here. Paul takes the cross, the crucifixion, the most shameful of deaths, that could possibly be imagined, and he turns it on its head. The cross isn't something shameful. The cross is an image of triumph. And it didn't happen in a closet, Paul would say. This happened publicly. 
Christ put the rulers and authorities, the seen and the unseen world, um, who were hostile to him, he put them to open shame. How did he do that? By not staying dead. That's how he did it. How did he put him to open shame? You guys think you killed me? You think you killed me? You think you guys have won? Well, boy, howdy. They were disappointed three days later when Jesus walks out of the tomb and says, guess what, guys? You didn't do, what else you got? You're done. Public, public display. So here's what the Lord, I think, wants us to get our brains around. If you know Jesus Christ, the Lord, it doesn't matter what was on your record of debt. Listen to me. It does not matter what was on your record of debt. If you think your list was so awful that you're beyond reach or so awful that you still have to effort to, I mean, I know there's, I know in him, but, but, but look at my record of debt. I, I feel like I got to just keep doing. Paul's like, no, you don't. Read your Bible. Jesus was not afraid to be identified with the worst of the worst. Tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. He was berated for hanging out with those people. But he's like, I don't, I want to be identified with these people. I want them to, to be identified with me. He wasn't afraid to touch lepers. Look at the record of the people that followed Jesus. I mean, you talk about failures. The 12 disciples in his moment of greatest need on earth, they turned and fled. They abandoned him. Peter, Peter, the rock, denies him. Paul, this guy that wrote this letter and 12 other letters in your New Testament. Paul murdered Stephen. He stood and approved of Stephen's execution. Paul tried to squash the church before it was getting going. You think God's roster is full of saints who lived perfectly? No, it's a bunch of misfits. It's a motley crew. And God says, I want to be identified with them because I'm going to do all the work for them to make them righteous. It's not about them. It's not about what you've done. It's not about what I've done. It's about what he's done. So like, I don't know what's on your record of debt. I don't, I know what's on mine and it's horrifying. But here's what Paul wants you to know. Here's what Jesus wants you to know. If you've trusted in him then you've been filled in him, you've been buried with him. God has made you alive with him and your debt has been wiped off the face of the earth. Okay? And when we talk about this trusting in him, what we're saying for those maybe who have never heard this message before, or you're watching online and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Here's the skinny. What we're saying is, when we talk about trusting in Jesus, is you identify that I have a record of debt that stands against me and I cannot resolve this record of debt. That's step one, is you acknowledge I'm in a heap of trouble. And you look at Jesus and Jesus says, guess what? I've got you. I, I went to the cross and I died, but I didn't just die, I rose from the dead. And in rising from the dead, I crucified your record of debt. The things that are on your record of debt right now, I've taken care of. And if you will but trust in me, in the work that I've done on the cross, then you too can be brought into this family and in him, you'll have everything you need. That's what it means to trust in Jesus, okay? Back to our buddy Elmo. As I was reading <laughs> all the pages of replies, not all of them, but some of them, I started wondering how would Jesus have responded to all these replies on Elmo's Twitter feed? Let's assume Jesus has a Twitter account. That's weird, but let's assume. What would he say to all the hopelessness and the sorrow? What would he tell these folks who have so clearly been taken captive and enslaved by philosophies that have been shaped by human tradition and disconnected from himself? And then I realized, you don't have to wonder, Lev, because he's already done that. 
not tweeted, but he's already said. In Matthew 11, Jesus is teaching to a Jewish crowd, okay, of people, as I mentioned earlier, who'd been buried under human tradition. They'd been swallowed by the tradition of the elders, because that was where Jesus was stepping into. So he's having this conversation with these people, and here's what he said to them, Matthew 11, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And as if to hammer the point home, in Matthew's gospel, the very next thing, the two next things, the very two next things that happen in Matthew's gospel show Jesus confronting the Pharisees about their ridiculous handling of the Sabbath commandment. Okay, he's addressing, you have burdened these people. And listen, we're gonna, we're gonna get to, in a couple of weeks, all the commandments and the imperatives in this letter. And there's about 20 of them, of how to live rightly. We're gonna get there. But for today, for this week, here's your application. I just want you to soak in this passage. I don't want you to do anything. I want you to maybe print this bad boy up, tape it to your mirror, and I want you to remind yourself every day as you walk out into the world, into whatever it is you do, from the time you get up, the time you get to bed, I want you to be reminded that in him you have all you need. And if you want, and I'd encourage you, step off the treadmill of do, do, do. Step off the treadmill of more, more, more. Okay? And just rest in the fact that in him, you have all you need. Okay? That's your homework. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, Check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.